Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome everybody to today's event. My name is Hannah Webster and I'm the Head of Research here at the RSA uh, and I'm delighted to be chairing today's event where we're joined by Kate Bell, Morgan Wilde and Catherine Chapman. Welcome to you all. Firstly, let me introduce everyone joining us. Kate is the Head of Rights, International, Social and Economics at the Trade Union Congress. Morgan is the Head of Policy for Families, Welfare and Work at Citizens Advice. And Catherine is a Director at the Living Wage Foundation. Before we get into our discussion, just a little bit of housekeeping for us all. If you're watching along live, we'd love you to be involved in the chat. Uh, so please do share your thoughts and comments. And you can also tweet about this event using the hashtag RSA discontent to share your thoughts with a wider community. As for the conversation today, the past few months have seen cost of living pressures worsening across the country and workers in several sectors go out on strike as they fight for better pay and working conditions. Dubbed by some the summer of discontent, for many people this has been a time of anger, anxiety and frustration. Today we're going to be talking about that summer to understand a bit more about where the problems lie, what factors have shaped the situation and how power of the collective can be maximised, as well as what other important solutions might be considered. Uh, and I for one am very much looking forward to discussing it with you all. Uh, I think I'm going to kick off Morgan with you if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Citizens Advice have been putting out a range of really impactful statistics on the cost of living crisis, as well as a number of other things. And I wondered if you'd start us off by outlining how you see the cost of living crisis impacting people's lives and who this is being really affected by. Sure, um, I'm really pleased to be part of the discussion uh, today, Hannah. So I think what, what would I describe that? I mean, what we're seeing is just an un unfolding catastrophe for people's living standards. I mean, we've had occasion to use the word unprecedented uh, a number of times in a number of different situations over the past few years. Um, but it truly is in terms of what people are coming to see us with. Just to give a couple of examples of that in September last month, uh, we uh, broke our record for number of people we'd ever helped uh, with crisis support. So that's things like referrals to food banks, access to fuel vouchers. That was a record that um, we have broken six times in the last year. Um, another issue we're helping with people is um, people who can't afford to top up their prepayment meter. That was also a record in September, and that's the 10th time uh, that we've broken that record in the past year. I was speaking to an advisor uh, yesterday who'd been working for Citizens Advice for around 30 years and she was just saying that she'd never felt as if uh, she'd had as few options uh, to help people as uh, she does today. And I think that that really reflects two things. One is that the situation is genuinely putting millions of families uh, to the brink or past the brink of financial survival. Um, and it also reflects that the package of measures uh, that the uh, governments put forward, welcome though they are in some respects, and certainly we were very welcoming of uh, the, particularly the, the package of targeted support for people on low incomes. It hasn't been big enough uh, or bold enough and more is going to be needed. Um, so just to give an example 
of what I mean there. In July, we saw actually a huge dip in the number of people we were referring uh, to food banks. And that dip was timed just in the last two weeks of July when the first cost of living payments were hit, was hitting the bank accounts for people who are claiming benefits. Huge welcome sign in our data, but a sign that didn't last long. It's instantly, the next very next month, went back to uh, the level it had been the previous month, and now we're at new record levels again. So I think just that, that just indicates how big of a crisis we're in and how much support and help people on the lowest incomes are going to need uh, to weather an incredibly difficult winter ahead. Thanks, Morgan. I think definitely the relentlessness of those records that you mentioned at the top is, is really quite heartbreaking. Um, and I think what you're describing feels like quite an acute moment in time, but that has probably been building for many years. And your example of that um, policy and its impact on food banks kind of shows the power of, of government decisions on that. Um, Catherine, I'll come to you. I wonder if you had any thoughts on kind of the longer term policy decisions or economic factors that seem to be coming together in this moment from, from your work and beyond. Um, well, I think, I mean, firstly, just again, thank you for being here today, but to echo what Morgan was saying and, and what we're seeing as well in terms of our research and our work with low paid workers. So this is people who are in work and still um, we had some polling in August of, two, of workers earning below the real living wage, which is calculated based on the cost of living. And 56%, so over half, had gone to a food bank in the past year. And so this is people in work. So I think, again, this just illustrates the scale of what we're seeing. Um, and in work poverty, you know, particularly talking about long term trends, is something that's been building in the past decades. And there's lots of uh, research out there by Resolution Foundation and others that shows that um, real wages have just not been keeping um, uh, uh, in pace with inflation. And of course, they haven't in with the unprecedented levels of inflation we've been seeing. So that's obviously a huge thing. Um, energy costs, food costs, all the rest of it. This is me meaning that people really are making those heating or eating decisions. And again, in the polling we did, it was showing that kind of 42% of people were um, regularly skipping meals. Uh, and not being able to put their heating on. So that is the devastating impact of what's happening. And it's a long-term uh, uh, lack of growth in real wages compared to um, prices um, and, and many other policy factors are at play. And in terms of the impact of policy, like you were saying, um, you know, there's been welcome increases in the minimum wage um, uh, on, the, on the kind of working side, but it, it's not enough. Um, and particularly, obviously, Morgan's point about benefits. Um, one other thing that I would also say is a lot of what we're seeing, and particularly some campaigns we've been supporting recently, is a lot of um, low-paid public sector, like social care, for example. We're seeing acute problems there um, in pay levels and poverty levels. And so, again, from a policy point of view, it's making sure there is enough money in the system to make sure that lots of these roles um, people are able to earn a real living wage where it comes through the public sector. So that's really important as well and something that needs addressing quite acutely, I think. Thanks so much. And you mentioned a couple of times there, kind of the living wage uh, level that, that obviously you work so much on. I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about what that living wage is and, and what you think the impact would be maybe across, across sectors. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we announced the new real living wage rates for this year um, a few weeks ago now, the 22nd of September. So it's a rate that's calculated based on what it costs to live. So it takes into account food, childcare, travel, transport and, and so on. Um, and it's a bar on a basket of goods and services um, uh, by members of the public of what's needed for a decent 
standard of living. Uh, the current rates are £10.90 an hour across the UK and £11.95 in London. And the UK rate was a 10.1% increase compared to the previous year um, because we have seen these prices rising so much. And that was those increases in uh, the cost of living was driven by you know, energy and, and food costs and so on primarily. So if at the moment, one of the things that is quite interesting is we have seen quite rapid increase in the number of employers signing up to pay the real living wage. And we've actually seen record numbers signing up in the past few years. We've now got about 11, over 11,000 employers, half of the FTSE 100. Um, but, you know, that, that's still kind of a drop in the ocean in terms of, of what's needed. Um, but I think one of the you know, the benefits of the living wage to your point of kind of what difference could it make? I mean, the first difference it would make would mean that all those workers and families would not need to be going to food banks um, uh, and so on, as we've just been hearing. Um, but, it, you know, there are benefits to businesses as well, uh, more engaged, motivated, productive workforce, but also there are economic benefits. So we did some research uh, last year that showed that if a quarter of workers in the UK were lifted onto the real living wage across the country. This would be kind of millions of, of billion pound back into the treasury through productivity gains, through increased tax revenues. So it's kind of, it, in, from policy terms, it, it's good for people and their families, and it, but it's also good for businesses and good for the economy. So I think there would be lots of benefits across the board, mostly and primarily to families and people earning below the living wage, but also more broadly across society, if more people were earning a real living wage. Uh, and Kate, I'll bring you in because I'm so sure much of your work in recent months would have included discussion of uh, the stagnating wages and the impact that's having on workers. I wondered if you wanted to reflect uh, on kind of the role that's had in, in your work and any of the wider factors that you've been thinking about over the last few months. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, thanks for having me too. And um, basically, I agree with everything Morgan and Catherine have said. And I think you know, as both of them highlighted, we have very acute cost of living pressures now, but we have kind of the longest wage squeeze in 200 years, which has been going on basically since the financial crash. Pay has not been keeping up with inflation. And I think it is worth us reflecting on the longer term policy conditions that have got us there. So both, as Catherine said, you know, insufficient increases in the national minimum wage, insufficient increases in Social Security, in fact, deep cuts to social security, but also that policy of austerity we saw kind of sucking demand out of the economy, um, a deliberate attempt to drive down public sector wages, and finally kind of reducing the power of workers to take collective action, whether that's been through um, the Trade Union Act that was passed in 2016 or there's currently threats to workers' rights um, from the currently Liz Truss-led government. Um, I think one thing I just kind of wanted to reflect to on your um, opening statement, I think, you know, this has been a summer of discontent, but actually, for many workers, it's also been a summer where they've had a bit of hope restored. And I think some of the kind of collective action that workers have been taken, you know, driven by that feeling that we can't go on like this, this is really kind of enough is enough, has been resulting in some real pay deals for workers. Um, you know, we've had high profile action um, on the railways at Royal Mail not yet resolved, but also much, you know, many, many less high profile disputes um, in logistics, among refuse workers, among local government workers in Scotland, where they have been able to deliver 
decent pay deals um, where they've shown that employers can afford to pay those wages and they've shown again that despite you know the many restrictions on taking collective action workers have been determined to work together and actually you know come together and deliver some of those pay rises which you know they wanted to negotiate but employers wouldn't get around the table so you know I think you know that we've got a really grim picture right now um terrible cost of living pressures on families but i think we have started to see the difference that that collective action can make to um yeah absolutely and um i did want to ask you a little bit more about that because i think there's this balance of the successes that those campaigns have had uh but also some of the challenges in terms of the response across the media and and by different uh, kind of actors at play I just wondered, thinking kind of into the coming months and into winter, what you thought we might learn from that and, and if there's any action you think we could take collectively going forward? Um, well, first of all, kind of individually, we'd be encouraging people to join unions and we'd obviously be encouraging all employers to recognise unions where people have organised them. I think that's the most important thing we've learned, you know, the power of that collective action, people coming together and employers actually listening to that and recognising that their workers need a voice. I think you have seen kind of determination kind of across the union movement and a real sense of kind of that solidarity building between workers, basically, and people seeing other workers taking action, um, being able to win pay deals and that inspiring them. Um, but, you know, what we want over the winter is not a summer, is, you know, a winter of discontent, a winter of industrial action. What we want is a winter of decent pay deals. Um, that's why people are striking. Um, you know, that's because they've been pushed to the brink. What we want is a realisation from employers and also, of course, from government that they need to come up to the table and negotiate. And I think, you know, that's, you know, what we're hopeful about over the winter. Um, well, maybe not hopeful that that's now automatically <laughs> going to turn around. But I think, you know, what we've learned is actually employers often who've said, no, 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 we can't come to the table and afford to pay. Well, often they actually can. And I think, you know, that's what we want to see going forward. Mm -hmm. um, really worrying picture right now. Um, obviously, threats of public spending cuts coming down the line, um, kind of as a consequence of some of the decisions around the mini budget. Um, I think as of today, when we're speaking, um, you know, we're hearing about the threat of public spending cuts to come. I think, you know, that's going to be something that's really worrying people as we go into the winter. And of course, that's coming on top of the deep cuts we've seen over the last decade, yeah. not just in our public services, but also in our social security and our wages. I'd just uh, add to that, uh, Hannah, that I think we, we, not universally, but most often when we see people for employment issues, they tend not to be in unions. Uh, that could be because they can't um, afford to join. It could be because um, there's not a union um, uh, organising in their workplace. It could be because uh, their employer hasn't uh, recognised uh, that union act organising activity. Uh, and we see the consequences of uh, what happens to people when uh, they don't have that effective union uh, voice uh, campaigning for them. And it often leads people to really limited options. I like often uh, say that um, joining a union is basically the best insurance policy that you have against a bad employer or a bad boss. Um, and when we see people who are in those situations, often, you know, really basic things like having their day one rights trampled over, which an effective union would just be able to sort out quite straightforwardly. 
the options are just often really, really hard. Um, and we know that there's hardly any possibility of getting to um, an employment tribunal in a quick and effective way, given the lead times there. So we're often faced with people who have relatively weak way forwards. And so there's definitely a role for um, a strong union movement there, but also has have to be thinking about other ways that we can make sure that workers' rights are properly asserted uh, and enforced in the workplace. Just one really quick point just to add to what Morgan mm. said. Um, we also want to say that, you know, a union is a great insurance policy personally if you've got a bad employer, but it's a great policy for employers who want to have early warning signals yeah. about what is going on in their workplace. If you want mm. to know how your staff feel, you know, are your pain conditions reaching them? Are the messages you're putting out about whether they're about health and safety or the culture of your organisation, are they getting through having an independent and collective voice in the workplace? is the best way that you will establish and really the only way where you will have a good channel of knowing what's actually happening to your staff and how you can make their working lives better and therefore your organisation more effective. Thank you so much. I think uh, both of those are really powerful testimonials about what unions can do for us as individuals, but also kind of as a collective uh, group to, to fight something better. Um, and I think thinking about that kind of idea of collective action, obviously we've seen the union action we've been talking about, uh, but there's also been kind of campaigns growing like enough is enough, which I think are another kind of signal of people coming together. Uh, Kate, I think I'll stick with you for a moment. If you had any reflections on what we can do to offer solidarity to those collective movements, uh, including if we're not involved in them ourselves or if we are. Um, well, again, to be really tedious, you know, our message is always join up, basically, um, you know, it's not just for you, it's kind of, it is an act of solidarity, not least because you're paying into the union movement, basically. Um, I think, you know, people always do appreciate, you know, if you're able to go down and show your support on the picket line, if you're able to show your support digitally, that also matters to people. And if you're able to make your voice heard to make it clear that it's not just a kind of the workplace level but at government level that we need a change in policies um, that really helps. The TEC is organising um, a mass lobby of parliament on the 2nd of November, you can find out details of that on our website, this is my advertising section, um, but you know we want to have a really clear voice to um, politicians as well that people do think there needs to be a change of approach, um, they want decent pay rises for public sector workers, um, they don't want those trade union rights attacked, and they want decent social security as well, um, both for those who are in work, who Catherine was talking really eloquently about, and of course for those who might be out of work, whether it's because of sickness, a period of unemployment, or who've been working all their lives and who've retired. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of ways you can make your voice heard. Thanks, Kate. Catherine, um, I wondered similarly for you if there was any reflections you had on uh, what support might look like at this moment. Well, I was just going to sort of um, building what what both Kate and Morgan have said that we you know, we work with thousands of employees across the country, and these are the ones who've chosen to voluntarily pay higher wages. Um, so another, it's looking at it from a different angle, but kind of supporting the living wage movement and becoming a living wage employer, asking if your employer is living wage. Well, Let's say that, but just the goods and services you buy, are you thinking about whether or not that is an accredited living wage employee is one clear way of showing that you want to support businesses that are doing the right thing by their workers. And the one thing as well that I wanted to just lift out from this, because it's another kind of lever, if you like, is a key part of becoming an accredited living wage employer is that you 
also make sure that that contracted workers, i.e. cleaners, security guards, caterers, people that are not always directly employed by the employer, receive a real living wage. And that is critical because that is where you often see much of the, you know, the hidden face of low pay, for want of a better phrase, um, in this country. And that kind of the power of that supplier relationship is really important. Um, so both a responsible employer thinking about the power they have over their supply chain to improve employment conditions and pay, um, but also you as a consumer buying something, thinking about where you're buying it from and who you're buying it from. Um, and I just wanted to sort of add another thing that we're looking at as well at, at the moment, which is, a, is another big issue here when it comes to kind of cost of living and pay and income is the hours side. Like obviously we're talking about the the rate and the and, and the wage, but actually if you're not you know earning, if you're only working a few hours a week or you're getting your shifts cancelled at the last minute, then that's no good either. And that's another really important part part of the kind of equation here. And a couple of years ago we launched Living Hours, which is a new benchmark. I suppose it's following the same model as the living wage. If you've got a baseline with the legal floor and then you've got this voluntary standard that's higher um, and the living hours benchmark is four weeks notice for shifts, um, 16 hours a week minimum uh, and a right to request a uh, contract that reflects hours worked. And that is, is equally as important right now with the cost of living crisis because we know that people on lower incomes are, are more likely to be in this kind of insecure and volatile work. We did some research earlier this year that showed that um, of people earning below the real living wage, 50% were getting less than a week's notice of their shifts. So you can't plan a life, you can't plan a budget on that. And shifts were cancelled at the last minute. And um, so it was less than 24 hours notice, I correct myself. Um, and that was actually costing more with last minute childcare, last minute travel. So it's, it's even a, a kind of a premium, an insecurity premium for people on these short hour insecure contracts. So I just that's another key part of it. And why I think it's really important that employees are also thinking about the types of those contracts, including in their supplier um, as, as well. Thanks so much, Catherine. And just very quickly, you mentioned consumers finding out about the businesses they're buying from. Uh, the living wage accreditation, they can find that online usually. Yeah, right? on our website, um, uh, we have a kind of a, a living wage employer map so you can have a look. And we, you know, we've got, we have every year a living wage gift guide, Christmas gift guide. So that's another thing to look out for this year if you want to make sure you're supporting people who are, who are doing their best to not to pay decent wages, then that's a good thing to look out for, I would say. Fantastic, thank you. I think I saw the first Christmas chocolates in Tesco the other day, so uh, a timely recommendation, thank you. Um, and a few uh, instances here, we've talked about kind of recent policy decisions that have come out of the new government, um, which I think is around six weeks uh, in at the moment. Um, and I just uh, wondered, maybe Morgan, I'll come to you first, because you mentioned some of this earlier on. Uh, from your perspective, what impact do you think the government so far have had on this situation and what do you see coming up on the horizon? So to start off with the positives, I think the, the energy price guarantee, uh, in, it, yeah, it, it's a mixed picture as a policy, but positive um, uh, to that intervention, which is going to limit uh, bills to an average of £2,500 uh, for a typical household um, is that it stops the crisis insofar as it's focused on energy bills getting uh, exponentially worse. Um, so we were prepped for a, for a completely 
unmanageable winter and to some extent we still will be um but the that level of intervention will do something to limit uh, the damage caused by bill increases where it's weaker is that it still doesn't do enough for those on the lowest income so you know referring to um the records that we're breaking at the moment i would expect us to break more records uh this winter and less more support uh is announced um because the level uh that spills will be frozen that will still be a completely unaffordable rate uh, for too many households also find it slightly surprising that they given how much skin in the game the government now has in um, uh, limiting energy bills. It's surprising that they haven't done more to do simple things like accelerate energy efficiency measures, like help people uh, set out simple steps they can take to reduce their energy consumption in a really safe way. Um, there's opportunities there to make sure that we are reducing uh, our consumption and improving the resilience of what is the worst housing stock in Europe uh, in terms of uh, its energy efficiency. And so far, uh, there's definitely an opportunity there, but it's surprising that the government uh, hasn't taken it. Um, but broadly, energy price guarantee feels uh, positive, even though they need to go further. What feels very, very uh, ill-judged is even starting to put benefits operating, so increasing benefits by the cost of living on the table as something that can even be questioned. The government previously was entirely right to guarantee that um, social security would increase by the cost of living in April, and for that to be in question, firstly puts millions of households uh, in an enormous state of worry but they know that they are barely surviving as it is and desperately need that uh, increase come April so it causes a lot of unnecessary worry um, for people uh, and uh, secondly I think distracts from what the policy question should be which is how are we going to support people through an incredibly tough winter and how are we going to design a system of supports looking at benefits looking at wages that prevents us from ever being in this situation again thanks morgan i think that example is really um interesting at the rsa we do a lot of work about economic insecurity and we think about it not just about how you're able to get by at the moment but also whether or not you feel like in the future you'll be able to maintain mm -hmm. that or even for it to get better in that shifting kind of the shifting plates of what uh, benefits look like at the moment makes it really hard to think about the future and has a really big impact, I think, on on people's lives and their well-being. Um, Kate, I think I'll come to you. Yeah, I just think one thing I was sort of reflecting on in conversations with some people yesterday was um you will remember it feels like a thousand years ago, but there was a big campaign to keep the £20 uplift to universal mm -hmm. credit perfectly. It was just last year, I think, government made the decision to remove that. Mm -hmm. And I just think, how short sighted does that look yeah. at that point? Basically, you know, we've had various bits of policy trying to put together 
some of that support and this is a point that all of our organizations made at the time you know there was pretty widespread consensus that actually we'd finally provided people with a bit of decent security you know the kind of bleeding obvious that giving people more money makes them less poor but like also you know good quality research evidence say giving people money removes food insecurity um and we took that away from people we kind of pulled the rug from under their feet and government has now had to scrabble to keep up and i think you know it really shows the short-sightedness yeah. of the decision by what is essentially the same government as we have now even if different people are at the top of it um to reduce that piece of actual security that had been provided mm. during the pandemic when it was obvious it was going to be needed in the future yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and it does feel like more than a year ago, although I think we might be around the anniversary now. Um, it feels like there's a really important consideration here around people's kind of wider health and well-being as a result of some of these decisions. Um, Kate, I, I might stick with you because I think that example is a really important one. Um, and just thinking about that and what the long-term consequences that we might be thinking about or starting to try to prepare for in terms of how people are finding this experience. Um, yeah, I guess it's just, it's just really bad is the way to put it. You know, we know that poverty and insecurity causes stress, it causes poor mental health, it causes poor physical health. You know, I was reading some completely heartbroken, breaking quotes earlier from people who responded to survey in two of our largest surveys in two of our largest unions, um, Asdor and Unison, lay paid workers, saying things like, um, I've had to pull my kids out of all their off-school clubs. Um, I can't afford a new school uniform. One of them saying, my kids said they don't want any presents because I know they know I can't afford them. Um, and I sort of think sometimes we, we try and make this more complicated than it is, basically. Like, if you can't afford stuff, it's obviously bad for you and terribly stressful and stressful for your family. And we've known that. We've known that for a really long time. It's not a case of like, do we need to prove it? It's a case of, do we need to do something about it? Uh, and I think it links, Catherine, to your earlier point around uh, kind of the volatility of hours and, and the impact that has on wellbeing. I wondered if you had any reflections from that perspective and, and more widely about the impact we might be seeing coming up. Yeah, I mean, it, it's everything that Kate just said. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, we've, we've been looking at this for years of, of the impact that you know from our point of view earning a real living wage makes i.e taking away that day-to-day -day stress and mental strain but also physical um strain of worrying about uh, putting food on the table putting heating on like kate said heartbreaking stories of like duct taping school shoes um not being able to provide lunches at school you know that's the reality of what's going on and the wages piece is one piece the hours piece is one piece um uh, I think I think the hours piece adds the sort of extra dimension of not being in any way able to plan a life, being able to plan things. I always remember um, talking to someone who got his shifts on a for his the next week on the Friday before, and it was like he could you, you can't plan a life, you can't plan a family life, you can't plan a social life, like, and that takes its toll on your mental health, on your relationships, on everything, as well as on your financial ability to kind of save and budget and all the rest of it, which is going to be much more important now. Um, just talking about the long-term effects, which I think you mentioned earlier, um, it was just to bring something in, not to sort of add to, to the more kind of the problems and the gloom, but something that we've been looking at recently is 
um, the fact that all of the stuff that's happening now um, and thinking about the future and people's also people's ability to save for the future and the fact that today's cost of living crisis is also tomorrow's pension crisis because um, we've been starting to look at this obviously we're looking at day-to-day um, uh, -day earning enough through being in work for a decent standard of living but we started to look at well, what does that mean for retirement particularly for people on low incomes and um, I mean it's probably not surprising that the re results don't look good um, that we did some work looking at uh, the Resolution Foundation did for us looking at so what would how could you projecting back from what would be needed in retirement for a decent standard of living to now and it looked at people's current saving levels and for people on lower incomes 95% weren't reaching anywhere near that amount um, and so I suppose it firstly like inflation and what that's doing to kind of the need to save more for later in life but also people are we're also hearing that people are uh, put are less incentivized to put into pensions today so there's it's just a snowballing thing that's um going to become more of an issue um so we're looking at um ways that employers can step in again to do more to support that by putting in more better um looking if we can develop a new benchmark basically um that's kind of auto-enrollment but way beyond building on the success of auto-enrollment so it's just that's just adding another dimension i suppose of, of of gloom but to the point of like just running to keep up in the moment means that you can't even for a minute think about the longer term questions like planning for retirement can i add one i completely agree with with everything that that, that kate and, and kevin have said one one small it's pretty small to be honest um uh, glimmer of hope uh, so one of the ways that short-term financial crisis turns into long-run scarring for you and your family is if you fall into problem debts and at that at the moment we've got a, a bit of a weird paradox going on with people coming to us for that advice they're in the worst financial situation that we've ever seen um so the number of people coming to us in uh, what we call negative budgets so they have more essential expenditure going out than they have money coming in which isn't sustainable for a very long time um that's at its highest rate that we've ever seen um but the number of people coming to us for their advice still hasn't returned to its pre-pandemic level and what that says to me is that we're still we're still on the kind of roadrunner uh going over the cliff bit of um this crisis where people don't have enough but gravity hasn't quite kicked in uh in terms of what that means on their long-run financial health and so there is a window of opportunity and the government could take that window of opportunity to help people as kate says this is simple they just need cash to help them get through this cash is what's going to fix this but the return on that cash is much more than just helping people through the brutal hopefully next few months and year it helps keep them on a sustainable footing potentially for years and years to come uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Morgan. And uh, at the RSA, we've actually got a piece of research coming out tomorrow, which explores uh, the possible impact of a universal basic income. So exactly that idea of, of giving people cash in its simplest terms, but particularly the kind of health and mental health lens. And what we found is just a huge number of uh, mental health cases could be saved or avoided uh, if we were just able to give people the amount of money they needed in their bank accounts. Um, 
it's a little plug of my own there. Um, I might continue on that thread of kind of what, what we might be able to do going forward. Um, and I think, you know, the winter ahead does feel tough and it probably feels anxious for us all. Um, but I think you've all alluded to some kind of bigger ideas that might help us emerge into something better uh, over the coming months and years. Um, so I'd like to come to you each in turn, if that's okay, with some closing thoughts on what you might want to see uh, come from our government in the coming months to help us emerge from this crisis. And maybe I'll challenge you all to be big and optimistic as we do it. Um, Kate, I think I'll come to you first, if that's okay. Uh, and this is always a challenging one, so <laughs> uh, I'm really interested to hear what you want to say. Sure. And do you know what? I don't think it is challenging that now and I bet we'd all really agree so we'd start with higher wages we've got a campaign for a 15 pound minimum wage and we'd say you'd fund decent wages in the public sector too I think we all think we need better social security we might debate a tiny bit you know exactly what level or what mechanism or is it universal credit or do you put your marginal pound in child benefit but I think it'd be pretty easy to say we all know that putting some more money into the social security system would help the people that we care about and represent um, we would say that absolutely critical is giving workers more power to make this case for themselves, to make it in their workplace, um, so we'd strengthen trade union rights. And then we all know we need to be investing in public services, which have a preventative as well as a kind of day-to-day -day function. Um, I guess the one thing, again, which I think Morgan made um, the point really eloquently, um, we know that energy is and how we use energy is the major question for our future basically both in terms of the volatility of costs but also around climate change and that measure on home insulation we know ticks every box it makes bills cheaper for people it makes things more um, effective for the government it creates jobs as well and it also um, delivers on our totally vital net zero target so I think any government should have that pretty near the top of its list. And thanks for letting me go first. <laughs> Got the easy job. <laughs> thanks, Kate. Well, we might have some agreement um, going forward. Uh, Catherine, I'll come to you next if you wanted to support or add any of those. Reflections. Yeah, I, I mean, Kate's pretty summarised it pretty well. So uh, what I might do is almost look at, I'm thinking about glimmers of hope of like the employer side and actually what we're seeing. And I think I am heartened by the fact that we have seen record numbers of employers coming to us who are choosing to pay high wages. I think there's a lot of employers out there that are recognizing that now is the time to kind of to stand up and do the right thing. And they're not necessarily looking for cuts in bonuses and all the rest of it. You know, they are choosing to um, recognize that a lot of the workers that got us through the pandemic and we're at the front line of all of all of that um, are, are the people that they need to stand by in their businesses also supported by the fact that there are lots of job vacancies in the labour market, so it makes a lot of sense. So I think in terms of what we would want to see on the employer side um, is um, more living wage accreditations, commitments to pay the living wage, pushing it through supply chain, more living hours accreditations, which I think is the other side to all of this. Um, and you know, if we saw a big step change in that, that would go some way towards helping um, lots of people out there. Thank you so much. And Morgan, I think that means you're up if you had any additional reflections. I agree with Kate and Catherine. Uh, I think what we've, what we've seen the past few years is essentially an attempt um, on the part of policymakers to get by on a lot of these things on the cheap. Um, 
And I think Kate made the point very well about uh, choosing not to go ahead with a £20 a week uplift. I suspect if government had their time again, they'd definitely keep it because the alternative has been lurching from crisis to crisis, having to invest a little pot of money there, a little pot of money uh, here. Um, and more sooner or later, you're adding up to the cost of the intervention that you could have uh, made in the first place. Similarly, with energy efficiency, we've tried to get by while energy costs were very cheap, hoped that it didn't matter that our housing stock uh, was terrible quality. And now we're paying the consequences for taking that back. So I think like the big theme uh, coming out of this crisis is that, that that really is a wrong way to approach policy. It's wrong in terms of its impacts on people's lives day to day, but it's also wrong just on policy efficiency grounds, uh, but it's a, a bad way uh, to fund and structure um, policy making, whether that's a safety nets or uh, energy efficiency or wages. Um, hopefully that's a lesson we can learn. Thank you so much. And um, it, I'm really taking away from that kind of this underpinning idea of, being more compassionate with the people that we're trying to support and, and offering generosity more so than perhaps we have done in recent months. Um, it's been really great to speak with you all uh, and it's a particularly challenging time, but I've definitely appreciated the reflections you've given and those moments of optimism that I think will help go us through to something better in months to come. Uh, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, but just to say, Kate, Morgan and Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, thank you also to the RSA colleagues who have helped put on this event today uh, and to everyone who's tuned in to watch us. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the work that RSA has been doing around this topic, uh, the report I mentioned on universal basic income comes out tomorrow if you're watching this live. Uh, and we've also recently published uh, our work on the Good Work Guild, which summarizes our recommendations uh, in relation to work. And that can be found on our website and we've got lots more coming up over the coming months around the cost of living and economic insecurity uh, so please do follow us uh, on our social media uh, you can visit us at rsa.org.uk to find out more on all of our work and all that leaves me now is to say have a great day everyone and thank you so much for joining us thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations